The Third Man Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! to the Third Men Podcast. This is a Jack White and Third Men Records history program, and I am your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. I'm your other co-host, James Kaminsky. And we're joined today by a chronic guest, one half of the brain trust of Copper Sound Pedals, Mr. Alex Giraldi, who joins us once more. Thank you, Alex, for joining us on the show again. Thank you for continuing to have me on with no matter how relentless I say, hey, I have an idea. Let's do this. <laughs> I was thrilled. This, yeah, this idea came from you, this show we're about to do today. You texted me, I saw it, and I went, that's a great idea. We readily accept ideas. So we're going to be doing an analysis and review today an album analysis and review and these episodes are always my favorite because they get in and deep dive into different jack white albums from throughout his career in fact our first two episodes were analysis and review episodes and we've just about run out of albums almost but there's a few stragglers (laughs) and this is one of them And I would not have done this one as soon as we're doing it in the show had it not been for your suggestion, Alex, because I sometimes forget about it. Mm -hmm. Because it's not an album that is like a canonical Jack White complete project. It's an album that Jack White is a part of, Mm -hmm. 
arguably a primary part of, or at the very least an integral component. But it's just sort of like one where he is not in total control. And that's such an anomaly in the Jack White world. So we're talking today about Rome by Danger Mouse and Daniel Lupe. Lupe? I think he says Lupe. Yeah. And you know, going off that, Paul, like, I feel like if you asked any medium to even pretty large Jack White fan, like, hey, name five albums or projects Jack's done, it's not going to be in there. Right. For in general, you know what I mean? I don't think this is one that comes to the foreground of your mind when you think of projects and Jack White in the same sentence. It's you know? weird, though, because it is one that when you hear at least one of a couple songs, like he will play live and you'll go, oh, yeah, that's from this. And it's the instant reminder, like, oh, yeah, I forgot he did that thing. And then immediately <laughs> right. forget about it again. Because it's it, the music's great, but it's... You guys are right. It's like he's a featured player on it. He's not right. the he's not the main focus, with the rare exception. But yeah, so Jack White contributes to several songs on this record, and as you mentioned, James, he does wind up playing them live a lot more often than I thought he would. Actually, in fact, I recall on that Blunderbuss tour when he busted out "Rose with a Broken Neck," thinking. What? Because <laughs> I, because again, I was like, oh, sh- yeah, that's right. He did do that album, and he's doing it now. And it's one of those weird things that predates his solo career too. But it's solo Jack, but it's pre Blunderbuss solo Jack. So you don't get a lot in that pre Blunderbuss solo Jack. You get like what Cold Mountain. Mm-hmm. You get the you know that I know James thing. Bond song. Right. Mm-hmm. You get the Alicia Keys. Um, Mm-hmm. But there's not that many, at least in that very early pre-Blunderbuss iteration of his uh, career. So it is, yeah, it's an oddball kind of strange footnote in the Jack White canon. Mm-hmm. And I am a person who absolutely adores oddball strange footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I am really, really excited to talk about it today. His later oddball strange footnotes... He does seem more willing to play, though, which is great news for us, with with the exception of, like, uh, Q-Tip. Uh, yeah, what? we got it from here. Thank you for your service. Yes. Uh, yeah. But his his later stuff tends to get played more. But it's like if he played "Apple of My Eye" as an upholsterer song, in the he wouldn't do that. It's just his old his older early material. I guess most of it's already been covered through the White Stripes, mm. anyway. I guess you know we we hear him play his his collaboration with Beyonce. We've heard him play his collaboration with Alicia Keys before live. So it's I don't know interesting that he does it more often. Yeah, to piggyback off what Paul was saying too, like Blunderbuss is 2012 and Rome was 2011, so it was somewhat of a fresh release. So there was, there's got to be some semblance there. I think, like, you know, Tribe Called Quest, Tribe yes. Called Quest. Damn it! I was looking, I was looking, I was <laughs> Sorry. looking. Sorry. Yes, Tribe Called Quest. I remember the name of the album and not the iconic 
hip hop group. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, Alex. <laughs> That's fine. You guys needed to get there. I cut you off on your actual thought, Alex. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm just saying that um, in 2012, the momentum from Rome was still there, you know? Yes. So seeing that in Blunderbuss isn't too far removed. And again, I, going back to the whole lore of if you're a Jack fan, this might not be in your top thing that you think of. But I think there's a, an element here that I'm forgetting myself that I'm a big Danger Mouse fan. So that's yes. like, so having a couple of those you know characters together makes it. I'm kind of in that Venn diagram. But I'm ready to jump into it if you guys are. Yeah, yeah, well, let's let's do that. So Rome was the brainchild of the producer Danger Mouse, as you mentioned there, Alex. And I know we'll get into a bit of that more as we go here. But uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about how he uh, got together with Daniel Lupe and how this album kind of took shape? Yeah, so... um... This kind of started in uh, 2005. When I was doing my research, I pretty much had every video of uh, Danger Mouse and Daniel up that I could find. And there's not too, too much. Like, it's not as readily available as other Jack stuff and other um, Danger Mouse things. But essentially, this started in 2005, which, going back to you, Paul, this is the Satan era. Your favorite. Um, Your favorite. Um, So Danger Mouse met Jack when he was on tour in like 06 or 07. That's what uh, Danger Mouse recalls. He said that Jack was in the studio recording Icky Thump, and he showed Jack the music. A real quick aside there, though, Jack, I don't know if it was because they met or a coincidence and that they happened to meet. Crazy. Of course, Jack and the Raconteurs were covering Crazy by Gnarls Barkley, which was... Which Another Danger Mouse track. project, yeah. Yep. yeah. And that was, yeah, 2000. I think his records were 2006 and 2008 yep. for St. Elsewhere and yeah. uh, The Odd Couple. So, yeah, at that point, I remember Danger Mouse saying he didn't ask Jack to sing on it. He was just merely showing him what he had done. And then six months later, Danger Mouse asked Jack White to sing on it. Jack said he'd give it a shot. And at the time, Daniel called Danger Mouse and said he'd heard a White Stripe song on the radio and asked about getting Jack to sing because he was so different. So that, that kind of happened serendipitously. The fact that Daniel, again, an Italian composer, was hearing Jack's mm-hmm. stuff and Danger Mouse, being American, was probably more readily involved with anything Jack related, you know? So it's kind of cool that those came together. Sure. European countries were big into the Jack stuff. True, I mean, true. I mean, uh, England, obviously not being directly European in that way, but was the big one for him. But mm-hmm. yeah, what we hear time and time again is that all these garage rock acts out of Detroit would go and just tour Europe for a long time and probably see just as much, if not more, success in Europe than they were in America at the time. So it would have made sense that it would have crossed, the White Stripes would have crossed Daniel's path. But this is via The Guardian here. No one has ever accused Danger Mouse, a.k.a. Brian Burton, of being work shy. Since 2005's The Grey Album, his widely lauded hybrid of The Beatles and Jay-Z, the Maverick producer has defined creative restlessness. There was Gnarls Barkley with CeeLo Green, which spawned the multi-million selling Crazy, and two albums, 2006's St. Elsewhere and 2008's The Odd Couple. There was production work for The Gorillas, The Rapture, Beck, and in the works right now, U2 at the time of the writing of that article, which was 2011. 
This year alone, there was Dark Night of the Soul, a collection of songs written by the late Mark Linkus of Sparkle Horse, not to mention Broken Bells, a new project with Shin's frontman, James Mercer. But if Burton's artistic progress has been difficult to follow, it may well be because there's been a crucial piece of the puzzle missing, a piece he has been shaping since the release of the Grey album, and that is the record we're talking about here today. So as that Guardian article details, he was kind of a producer du jour around the tail end of the 2000s into the 20-teens. On another podcast I do, Now Hear This, we talk about the album Modern Guilt by Beck, which is my favorite Beck album and is a Danger Mouse production. And him, like, I don't know, Jeff Lynn or I'm trying to think of somebody else who has a really heavy-handed production style. Well, maybe just him and Jeff Lynn. <laughs> Those are the two that come to mind. Maybe Annie Clark has a, has a pretty heavy-handed production style. Uh, you, you can tell immediately that it's him producing. Mm-hmm. He's got certain kinds of things he gravitates towards, certain sounds that he leans towards. And frankly, it's stuff that I like. It's like this fusion of 60s beat rock with hip-hop undertones. But he's a really skilled musician across a lot of different instruments. And so it gives him this breadth of uh, this palette to to play with with these artists and i think he brings out some really beautiful sounds out of them if they sound a little similar to one another, and, and they kind of do but i again i like that sound much like jeff lynn like yeah all jeff lynn's productions kind of sound the same but i sort of like his sound so i don't care mm-hmm. Thing. Now, where do you guys land on, on his production style? Do you guys dig that sound, or does it wear on you or feel a little samey? I've said multiple times in the shop that I wish more hip-hop and rap artists work with Danger Mouse, because every time I hear something like... Because one of my favorite records of all time is St. Elsewhere. And yeah. the level of layers and tracks that he does, not to an obnoxious point, but there's some great production on there, which sometimes I hear like rap songs that I feel like I could get into, but I feel like they get lost because it's got a digital beat, maybe a little bit of strings in the back, and then it's just 58 verses until the song's <laughs> over. And I go, man, I wish Danger Mouse could put his fingerprint on this. I, I, I'm definitely in the camp of I like Danger Mouse. He's kind of the reason I started liking um, the Black Keys because I wasn't huge on Brothers. He only did one song on there, and then he did El Camino, and he did oh, and he did Turn he did. Blue. I forgot he did that. So <laughs> for for me, Danger Mouse is the really the main reason I like the Black Keys.
I think he turned it around personally for me because I liked Attack and Release, which he I'm pretty sure he worked on that. He did, I think, Tighten Up and maybe New Girl. And then he did all of El Camino and Turn Blue, which are probably two of my favorite records. So for me, I am definitely a fan of Danger Mouse's work. I do li- I'm do. i not a big Beck fan, but I like Modern Guilt. It's just, I think I also have a bias here because I just like Danger Mouse as an artist. You know, yeah. I like I like Rome. I love Broken Bells. That's my girlfriend and I. That's one of our like favorite bands is uh, Broken Bells after the disco. That record is one of our favorites. I'm not super familiar. We should play a little bit of that here. Yes, I am. I'm definitely a fan uh, on whatever he touches. And I, my favorite um, U2 record is "Songs of Innocence," which is the one he did as well. I'll be damned. No, I mean that's one of the reasons I want to do this episode. How do you feel about it, James? I tend to enjoy. It. I don't. I don't think he's got the same. I don't think his fingerprint is as deep carved as Jeff Lynne's. Jeff Lynne's <laughs> is every song that he produces sounds like an ELO song, but. Um, I mean, it makes sense. With Danger Mouse, he tends to add little flourishes and touches to the, to the music that I, I like a lot. And a lot of it has its roots in 60s pop, like Paul was saying, which which kind of is... It's got a fun, nostalgic feel to it. It makes it feel a little wistful or yeah, like it's music that's been around for a long time. I mean, he kind of lays it on thick with uh, St. Elsewhere and The Odd Couple with Gnarls Barkley, but... Um, Mm-hmm. In something like Modern Guilt, it, it works its way in and, and feels, it always feels like it belongs. It never feels like a layer on top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of simultaneously timeless, but also a very distinct moment in history, like at the same yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, it's got it's got a feel of like, um, not 2010s hipsterism, but like 2020s hipsterism of like, we're taking photos with actual Polaroids because we want to feel like we were our parents in the 70s. But like, <laughs> we realized the people doing that in 2010s were assholes. Like, you know, it's, I don't know. Right. <laughs> I was one of those assholes. It's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> so yeah, this project is largely the brainchild of Danger Mouse, and it's something that he had been developing for quite some time. And it's basically sort of really an odd mission statement behind it. He's basically making a love letter to Spaghetti Western soundtracks. Mm -hmm. So it plays like a soundtrack to a movie that doesn't exist. Specifically an Inicio Morricone. Right. Soundtrack, and we'll, and we'll find any, any uh, we'll find connections to Morricone uh, as we go here. I, I found some some connections there, but it's just such a weird thing that an artist like Danger Mouse, like it, it doesn't surprise me that Danger Mouse gets along with Jack because that also seems like something he would do: mm. make a soundtrack for a movie that doesn't exist. It's kind of an esoteric, heady art projecty idea but raised to a different level with the caliber of the talent involved. So it's basically just like, yeah, if you're a fan of music and you have the platform to do weird shit, this is 
an example of some of the kinds of weird shit you could do if you were so inclined. So this is via The Guardian. Five years in the making, this collaboration is between Danger Mouse and Italian composer Daniel Lupe, born out of the pair's love of 60s Italian film soundtracks. It was recorded at Rome's Forum Studios, a converted church that once played host to composers such as Ennio Morricone, Piero Umiliani, and Bruno Nicolai. And uh, features vintage equipment and contributions from musicians who also were featured on spaghetti western scores such as Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Once Upon a Time in the West, and then Jack White and Nora Jones are on there too. (laughs) It's just just sort of a weird sort of extra thing. So Daniel Lupi says, I've been exposed to Italian film soundtracks since my early childhood. The state-owned TV would play Spaghetti Westerns and the Fellini movies every weekend. I remember being just five and being like, oh, it's Sunday night, time for Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I really absorbed those sounds. Danger Mouse follows with, I've always watched a lot of Spaghetti Westerns, and I got a bit obsessed with tracking down the soundtracks. Everyone knows about Morricone. Morricone? I don't know. I said Inicio, and I meant Ennio, which... uh... I think I was thinking of Benicio. So apparently I don't even know anything, even though I'm a fan. And some of these other guys had amazing stuff going on as well. Back in the early 60s, more experimental composition was looked down on. So the movies were a great vehicle to get away with doing all of that. And so Danger Mouse and Daniel met up in around 2004. Daniel says, Brian had just done the Grey album, and I had just done a record called The Italian Story, which was basically my homage to Italian film soundtracks. I'm not really a hip-hop fan, but I loved the Grey album. Brian is able to combine the charm and beauty of old instruments with something very contemporary. That's kind of like what we were just saying. We had both talked about each other's work in the press, and it turned out we had a friend in common who introduced us danger mouse follows up with daniel had just moved out to la from italy to do more soundtracks he came over to my place one day and saw a collection of old italian film music he knows about all this stuff but i think he was impressed i had so much he started helping me with some arrangements on the first gnarls barkley record and we just became friends and that through their friendship is how this whole thing sort of started so they just kept talking about doing a project together they were mutual friends and doing a love letter to Spaghetti Western soundtracks was the thing that they decided to do together. I mean, it's as simple as that. It took a while to put together because they were busy, busy people with lots of projects. But I do love that. And I love that the Grey album is at the heart of all of this (laughs) because we've talked about the Grey album on this program before and now hear this. So anyone who doesn't know, yeah, that's the Beatles and Jay-Z mashup, unofficial, but everyone had it. It was like this mixtape CD underground thing that everyone in college in the early 2000s was listening to. And I was obsessed with it, too, as James remembers. It, it is really good, you know? It was an era when mashups were uncommon, um, because now everybody has Fruity Loops, or FL Studios, I think is what they call themselves now, and, and can... 
I, I won't say everybody can do it, but you hear a lot more mashup style musicians since the Grey album kind of happened. Uh, yeah. One of my favorites I talk about often, Neil Cesariga does that quite often uh nfl studios so um but yeah it was it was weirdly prevalent even kids in high school were passing it around i know i you know i had heard it not only just through paul giving it to me but other friends of mine and a similar thing happened with jack too with the red album where they mashed up oh yeah I forgot uh, about that. Not not the red album, the red blood cells. They yeah, where well, they put bass on it and stuff. Yeah, yeah, strange. Anyway, Alex, did the gray album cross your path at all? Not really. Surprisingly, of like all Danger Mouse's stuff, it's not, and again, I think it's uh, again, I'm not really into Jay Z or the Beatles, so those two things didn't really <laughs> attract me. But I eventually got into them two years later with Charles Barkley. Right. No, but I knew. But I again. I think I had heard of my main foray into Danger Mouse outside of uh, CeeLo Green collab was knowing what he had done with the Grey album. Yeah, and you kind of couldn't get away from it. Yeah, it's and it's so funny for a thing that's unofficial, <laughs> and it was just like it's like pre-social media too. It's just sort of passed around. <laughs> I, lo- I actually really love that. There's some kind of weird romance to that that I really appreciate. Yeah, know? it was SoundCloud before SoundCloud existed. <laughs> right. Um, so this is the really interesting part too of this record is essentially the two guys wanted to record on vintage gear, like to do the whole record, but that doesn't exist in Rome. Like there's no, just like, Hey, I would like to rent one of the vintage instruments, you know, like you couldn't get that in Rome. So I remember watching documentaries and anything I could find. And they said that they would drive around Rome and knock on doors to try to find these vintage pieces. (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine that? that. Could you imagine that today? (laughs) Like in New York city or something like that. That's amazing. Hey, you got some vintage drums in there. Like, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, Daniel Lupe kept mentioning that some of the gear was rented and paid for with bottles of wine because there wasn't a currency for like renting vintage gear for X amount of time and returning it. They didn't have like the infrastructure there. Like you couldn't just go to Joe's music and rent that vintage guitar. So speaking of romance, that's a very romantic notion. Go, going around and trading bottles of wine across the Italian countryside for vintage recording equipment. They, they call it romance. Hey. I feel like this is a weird describing a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> yes. I mean, Owen Wilson is the one doing it. Wow. And he's got a little page boy uniform on for some reason. I've got this wine here. Wow. That's awesome. I love that. And so, yeah, there's some very key talent behind this project. And we're just going to do a rundown here of all the key contributors to the record. There's actually a lot of contributors to the record, but we're going to talk about the key ones here a bit. And I guess we'll start here with Danger Mouse. Just to rehash, we've kind of mentioned it, like 2004 was when he came into prominence with the Grey album, which uh, collected... Jay-Z's The Black Album and the Beatles' eponymous record, which is usually referred to as the White Album. And for anybody listening that isn't familiar with Danger Mouse, maybe I can give a couple of these artists. We won't go through every one, just for for them that he's done. So outside of the Grey Album, so Danger Mouse himself has a few records under his moniker, but he usually does some other stuff. We had mentioned Sparkle Horse, Dark Knight of the Soul. He had done uh, a record, Danger Doom. He did two records with uh, CeeLo Green called Gnarls Barkley. 
We had also mentioned, I'm a big fan of his work with James Mercer of The Shins. He did two records with Broken Bells after he did Rome and kind of during at the same time because he's a busy boy. Yeah. And uh, in 2019, he did Lux Prima, which is a cool record with Karen O. He's also done some production with The Gorilla's Demon Days, which is mm. another big hitter on this list for somebody that... Um, not familiar might have known the yeah. record but not the producer he did a record with the rapture he did uh, as i mentioned the the black keys he did attack and release he did a few more after el camino he did beck's modern guilt he also worked with electric guest on their first record mondo did a record with nora jones which i'm assuming was after the production he did on uh, rome did a right. Portugal the Man. Yeah, that's really funny. I didn't know he did Portugal right? the Man. <laughs> yeah, 2013. Adele's 25 was him? So Adele's 25, I know this for a fact, is a collection of different producers. Oh. And he did, I believe, the song The River Lee. Everybody tells me it's about time that I moved on. And I need to learn to lighten up and learn how to be young. But my heart is a valley, it's so shallow and man-made I'm scared to death if I let you in that you'll see I'm just a fake Sometimes I feel lonely in the arms of your touch But I know that's just me, cause nothing ever is That is fucking wild And I'm seeing here Michael uh, Kiwanuka, I think he had a Blue Series single Mm-hmm we can easily snowball with the amount of stuff he's done. A last couple of ones, he's done a record with ASAP Rocky. He did uh, the Chili Peppers Getaway, and he did an album with a small band called U2. <laughs> so there, there's some there's there's some more on here, but those are some notable notes for uh, his discography for the listeners that might not be super familiar with Brian Burton's work. That is wild. I had no idea. I'm going to find that Adele track right away. I've, I've, I'm sort of late to the Adele game. I okay. I got. 30 and it's fine you know i think she's one of these people that can sing the phone book and so mm-hmm. i'm less impressed with the songs but i more just like her voice a lot yeah and i could listen to her voice all day i mean so, she really belts it on many shades of black she's yeah excellent on that uh, but me and a co-worker that's our main connection to music <laughs> is that he likes adele and i like the rack and tours and we both <laughs> venn diagram into many shades of black <laughs> The new record's uh, pretty good. It's it's, like, it's sort of like his heartfelt thing about her kid, and so it's it's good. But again, her, I feel like her songs aren't as good as the her voice. Now, is the Danger Doom... St- is that MF Doom, you think? Yeah, is that yeah, MF Doom is what I was going to ask. I think so. I'm not super familiar. I, I'm more of, again, I know the name, and I'm familiar with that, but I, okay. I don't know the nitty-gritty on every single thing Danger Mouse does, because, again, like, I like, him as a, yeah. <laughs> I like him as a producer, but I don't know everything. Yeah, gone. so Danger Doom is the collaboration between Danger Mouse and MF Doom. I, I had I no vaguely idea. remember this coming out because I was a big follower of MF Doom on MySpace. Yeah, back in back in the time, Same, uh, and I remember a lot of talk of that mm-hmm. album. So that's two thousand and five james or whatever coming out forcing people to listen to children of the revolution on his myspace page so that's uh kind of the roundup for um a little background for danger mouse yeah and then we have daniel lupe here yep daniel lupe as we mentioned was an italian composer and music producer who's been active since 1999 
It's over 20 years. He's been recognized for his contributions as an Emmy-nominated film and television composer and has worked with the likes of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Niles Barkley, and John Legend. Three small artists right there. Um, As a film composer, Lupe has scored a number of productions, including The Assassination of a High School President, starring Bruce Willis, and the award-winning indie film Bad Habits. His work in television includes an outstanding original main title theme music, Emmy nod for Netflix Marco Polo, and Stars' Magic City. He definitely seems like another guy that's got his fingers and stuff that like you don't realize but he's involved with it yeah and i'm sure he's super active in in like italian music specifically because that's a whole other like it's a whole other ball of wax when you start getting into these different countries and they all have local language music scenes and stuff it's funny i was listening to a podcast interview with the guy who discovered celine dion and she was like this rinky dink but like super popular in this very specific french canadian music (laughs) bubble (laughs) but then once you get out of that bubble and you start doing english versions of the songs then they start getting you start getting this worldwide acclaim and stuff but i would imagine that daniel here you know is probably his foothold in the italian bubble is probably huge Mm -hmm. and the the French Canadian bubble is a bubble inside of the Canadian bubble, which is its own unique <laughs> thing too. Because like I listen to a Canadian podcast and they constantly rattle off Canadian singers and bands that I have just never even in my wildest dreams heard of. Like yeah. Wild Strawberries. Well, I'm gonna look them up. Yeah, and they're great. They're fine. You know, it's then the you, you have your breakout stars, your Celine Dion's and your Avril Lavigne's and your uh... was is Avril. Le- is Avril Lavigne French Canadian? No, I believe she's just regular Canadian. Oh, yeah, like Bill Bill Shatner and all these other secret Canadians. <laughs> yeah, they are. Uh, how dare they? We love, Se- we love secret Canadians. Sounds like an indie rock band. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's <laughs> it's an it's a new album that's by the, that's the third Jack new Jack album yeah. coming next year. Secret Canadians. <laughs> so. So let's talk about a name that I am just going to butcher here. But another big one on the record is Alessandro Alessandropni was a childhood friend of fellow composer Ennio Morricone and composed over 40 film scores in his lifetime, contributing to the score of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, A Fistful of Dollars, Once Upon a Time in the West, and of all things, The Lego Movie. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay. I love that that's on that list. I I <laughs> yeah. think I think it's because they probably used some of the good, the bad, and the ugly yeah, in, that's probably in it. it. Yeah. Um but also there's the movie that soundtrack came out on Third Man. Uh Oh, um uh, uh Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight, thank you. I listen to that soundtrack a lot, actually. Yeah. It and Susanna hates it because it's it's it feels it's there's a lot of dread in it. <clears throat> yes, there is a lot of that, and also the movie quotes are not great to have around toddlers, which is. <laughs> oh, you have nothing but dread and n words flying and all this. That's not great. Just, yeah, it's. Oh, dropping the kids anyway. off at school, throwing on the hateful eight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, Alessandro, of the many, many musicians, I pluck 
Alessandro out in particular here because he was called out a bunch of times by Danger Mouse in interviews and seems to play a very prominent role on this record. Mm -hmm. But he got involved because he was known for guitar parts on Annie Morricone's uh, iconic soundtracks. And Danger Mouse said via Quietus, it's not like they knew who I was or anything like that. I was just the American guy with Daniel who had met some of them before talking about the musicians on the project. And we were just recording this new album. I don't think that they would have known who Jack White or Nora Jones was. It wasn't really a big deal being made of the whole thing. There wasn't really this concept where people were understanding what we were really doing, which was fun. I don't think we knew what we were doing initially anyway. They were a little surprised that we wanted them to do what they had done a while ago, but they were into it. For them, it was like a day back at work where they hadn't worked there for a long time. A lot of them hadn't seen each other for a long time, and there were some tears for the first, but within a couple of hours, they were shouting and screaming at each <laughs> other. So I, say, I think they were right back into it pretty quickly. So he's talking about basically getting the band back together. Alessandro was a key uh, musician in getting that said band back together. But I just love that. I love that he was just this hipster that rolled into Italy to make this real hyper hipster project. And, but, they, but like Jack stuff, he had the genuine love and the, it wasn't for exploitive purposes. It was for love. It was for the love of music, <laughs> which I think is the key distinction there between like hipster and artist, I guess. I mean, there's you could really, really easily have wrote in there and just tried to exploit all of these people, but I think he was doing it from a place of like genuine love and admiration. Yeah, it wasn't pretension that was causing this. Right. I'm throwing around hipster a lot because it is kind of a hipster idea. Like, oh, wouldn't that be wild? Like, let's do a spaghetti western into a spaghetti western that doesn't exist. And then you have Jack White come in looking like Errol Flynn. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because Jack's got the handlebar for this one. I think. Um, I think he's got a goatee, a straight goatee. Oh, I thought it was a handlebar. He, he was dressing like Errol Flynn. Jack White became involved in the project. Speaking of Jack and his handlebar or whatever he had there, Danger Mouse again told that website Quietus, well, I didn't actually know who would sing on the album for almost a year after we did the initial backing track. So I guess he and Daniel went off to Italy and, you know, made the soundtrack, made this album. But then he was starting to think about how he was going to spice it up and put lyrics on it and stuff. He continues, because I really just wanted to make sure we got the right people. Jack was actually one of the first people I played any music for, but I definitely didn't play it to him with the idea of asking him to sing on it. I didn't think he'd have the time. I just didn't know how it would work. Then eventually I emailed him because he really responded to and loved the music. So I asked him, what about singing on it? And he just said, sure, because he was looking for something unique. On all of the songs of his, he doubled his vocals, the high and the low. So kind of like how he did on um, Want and Able, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? That's him doing high and low and stuff, right? Yep. Tell me who, tell me who, tell me who. Well, one and Abel were crossing the road. One had a feeling there was something he was owed. But Abel 
Initially, it was done to see which one would work better. But after we did them, we thought it sounded good with both of them on there. So I really kind of love that that was a, a happy accident, that that unique kind of vocal sound Jack's getting on this was not necessarily intended to be the final product, and then it turned into being the final product. Daniel Lupe continues, We'd already thought about Jack separately, and then we just convened and found out we were on the same page. To have Jack's voice, which is really abrasive and strong, over this elegant music was a huge turn in the making of Rome. Nora was the other twist. We wanted a contrast to Jack, and she was just perfect. We compressed and filtered her vocals, and credit to Brian here, because very few producers would have chosen to do what we did with Nora's voice. So I find that very interesting, that Jack wasn't initially supposed to be involved, became involved, and then Nora was more brought in as a counter to Jack's vocal stylings, which, as they say, are abrasive, which they can be. You know, he's, he's yeah. got a sweet voice too, but they are s- distinct and, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, they're they're there, you know. Hit you, they slap you across the face, basically. It is nice to have those two, and they do, on the album, kind of have a back and forth in a way. You know, there's a Nora song and a Jack song and a Nora song and a Jack song, which, which balances out quite nicely. Also, Jack does have a handlebar, Paul, but it doesn't connect all the way to his goatee. Uh, so he does have a little chin thing going on. That's probably called a something. I mean, I think he... It's not a Van Dyke. It's a something, though, right? Sure. Anyway, people know who Nora Jones is, but for <laughs> just the overview there, obviously, uh, Nora Jones is a multi-Grammy award-winning singer and songwriter and piano player. She sold over 50 million records worldwide and is widely acclaimed in just about every music journalist's list of top performers of, you know, at least the last couple decades. And uh, she's also, which is really sort of, again, an odd footnote, is the daughter of Ravi Shankar, James and I know intimately well through his Beatle connections. And so it's Mm -hmm. just so weird to me (laughs) that Ravi Shankar's daughter became a pop singer. It's just so weird because there's also Anushka Shankar who followed in her dad's footsteps and became a sitar player. And that I get. That kind of makes sense to me. But the idea that one of his daughters rebelled and became a Western pop singer is really, really fucking awesome. I I just really love that. One of his closest friends was George Harrison, a Western pop singer. So yeah, there is that. She's about the same age as Danny. I think Danny is maybe a year or two older than her. And I do uh, recall very clearly Nora Jones's uh, Not Too Late album cover being splashed alongside Jack White white stripes album covers because and i would be confused because i feel like there's a lot of red and white (laughs) going on is this also jack no that's not meg that's nora jones right (laughs) jump in here danger mouse said that he had always thought of nora starring as the female role he said he didn't know her directly but simply asked if she'd be interested and she said yes so simple yeah danger mouse follows to say that uh he thought her vocals really pushed the melodies. She did such a great job. When she finished singing Seasons Trees, which we'll get to momentarily, that was exactly where the song was supposed to be. Couldn't imagine anyone else doing it. Nice. Yeah, that, and that's a favorite of mine on the album. Like you said, we'll talk about it in a moment, but her vocals are really good really on this good. record. 
They've yeah. sort of got that jazz club, wispy, kind of slinky. Breathy. Breathy, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a little rasp on there, just a little bit. You know, it's just really... Uh, um, almost really uh, saxophone quality. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, you, can, you can, you know, feel the air. I think that's one of the things is like the, there's a jazz fusion um, aspect to her music. I'm not really like the biggest Nora Jones fan, not because I don't like her, but because I've just never really listened to a Nora Jones mm-hmm. like album all the way through. Like I know the singles, like everybody does and stuff like that, but yeah. it's actually re-listening to this album and getting to know it a lot more uh, intimately recently has made me want to check out her stuff in a, in a bit more detail because I wound up just thinking she was a highlight of the thing. Mm-hmm. It was recorded in that converted church using that vintage equipment. Danger Mouse was going to write the music, transcribe it to sheet music, and then fly it to Rome and then have it recorded by the musicians into new songs. And that was part of the reason why Jack was so intrigued by the idea that that in itself is sort of, sort of like going a long way toward arriving at this musical place. And then I guess when the whole thing was done, he gave it to Jack to play in his car. So Jack would drive around Nashville and just kind of sing anything that came to mind. And that's how he came to write the vocals for these different tracks, which is funny because that's how we know Alison Mosshart writes songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, or one of the ways is she drives around Nashville in her whatever muscle car and, <laughs> and then scribbles down her thoughts uh while driving 60 miles an hour yeah. <laughs> you, you know paul while i didn't realize we had this note here i had made a note somewhere else but i feel like right now is a good time to mention it i'm kind of wondering if this act of him driving around in the car kind of trying to be inspired by any nashville if any desert or wherever he drove out of nashville for if that inspired what he did with Blunderbuss, I don't know if you saw my note here, but in Blunderbuss, he had the producer feed the tracks into his car while he was driving around. He would do the mixes that way. Wow. I, I vaguely remember or, um, this fact coming up. I think he like had a barn where he was recording, if I remember the story correctly, and he would pump in and he would, he would have like a walkie-talkie or something and be like, hey, can you, give me, <laughs> can you give me the kick drum? I want to hear the kick drum through my car speaker. And then they would change it. I can't recall if that's... I should have done even more digging No, because I know, I know on Help a Stranger, Help a Stranger, he did that. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, maybe um, that's what I'm thinking about, is Help a Stranger. I'm confusing it with a Lazaretto. That is so funny. Yeah, Help wow. a Stranger, I think he had he had them do that, and he did that whole thing where he there he's out in the car, he's like, we, this is pirate radio or whatever, it's, it's illegal. But he just wanted to hear how it sounded so he could get the production just right, so it, it sounds good on our radio. Yeah, I, I wonder if this had any inspiration there. I, I feel like it's a running theme for him, because didn't he listen to demos and stuff on C- on the CD player? He had somebody go out and buy him a CD player in his car so that he could listen to so. No, he, he bought the CD player... And oh, remember, he, right. Blackwell was telling us that he and that CD player went up for auction, and right, that right. was pre a pre fame purchase. Mm-hmm. That right, wound up costing them like seventy dollars or something, which was a lot of money for him back then. And the story was, and it's in the Blackwell interview. It's one of my favorites where he he got a giddy thrill out of making the money back on the CD player that he bought from Best Buy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just so funny for a guy that will, like spend three thousand dollars on a peacock or something. Like, it's just a literal mountain of death. But it's just it's really funny to me that like he hung on to that like 
<laughs> Boy, that cost a lot of money. I'm so happy I made that back. Um, anyway, so the album was uh, released on May 16th, 2011. And the the personnel on the thing are, are, are extensive. Good luck. Yeah, there's a lot of names here, a lot of Italian names that I'm just gonna get real wrong here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try. I'm putting myself out there. We have JJ Munari on drums and percussion, Dario Rascaglioni on upright and electric bass, Luciano Cisaglioni on acoustic and electric guitars, Antonello. Vanucci. All right, let's uh, do another take on that. <laughs> Antonello Vanucci on so- Celesta harpsichord, organ, and piano. Robert Padillo on percussion. Gilda Butta on Celesta and harpsichord. Cantori Moderni di Alessandro Alessandroni choir. Ena Delorso on soprano vocals. A jack of the white on a on a on a spicy vocal meatball. <laughs> jack White on vocals. Nora Jones on vocals. And those are the key ones. There actually are a lot more, I think, but those are the those are the ones that are on here, and I think that's plenty of hearing me uh try to pronounce all of that the album is actually super duper short it's only 35 minutes long which is sort of really short like as especially as jack albums goes like he and he doesn't traditionally have very long albums but that is a that's a short run time it goes by even faster for me just because again it's shorter songs there's interludes which we'll get into but i feel like you know it's 35 minutes it feels like it goes by in like 20 yeah it is very short i I cooked dinner listening to this album Mm -hmm. and the only problem is that it's so subtle in a lot of places that my son pushing a shopping cart around the kitchen yelling i go fast green light (laughs) green means stop red means go (laughs) shouting it at the top of his lungs didn't really give me the best interpretation so i had to listen to it a couple times but yeah uh and thankful for the short runtime in that regard Mm -hmm. yeah Produced by Danger Mouse and Daniel Lupe, as we talked about, with mixing assists courtesy of Fabio Patrigani, whose credits stretch back as far as in 1988. Lots of Italian recording artists, none uh, that caught my eye in terms of recognizability there. It was released on Third Man Records in association with Parlophone EMI Capital, which is really cool because I don't know, this this the only time Jack has been on the EMI label because that's awesome because that's the Beatle one. Hmm. That's yeah. Yeah. I mean probably the vinyl was pressed at United Pressing because this of course predates the third man pressing mm-hmm. and the publishing is Cheese Breath and probably shares uh, <laughs> publishing credits with the other artists there but uh, I assume Cheese Breath is a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I assume Cheese Breath is uh, is Danger Mouse's publishing, uh, mastered by Stephen Marcusen of Marcusen Mastering, who also did some work for like Wolf Mother and Goldfrap and a lot of those indie rockers, and it was uh, recorded and engineered by Fabio Patrigani at Forum Music in Rome, Italy. Orchestra and choir conducted by Daniel Lupi and mixed by 
Danger Mouse, Daniel Lupi, and Fabio Patrigani at Glenwood Place in Burbank, California. Sunny Burbank, California. Mm. Additional engineering by Vance Powell, Anton Ryle, and Kenny Takashi. And then Jack's vocals were recorded at Blackbird Studios. Nora's also here in Burbank at Glenwood Place, which I think um, April, March recorded at with Brian Wilson. Didn't they, oh, I think nice. she did Chick Habit there, which is pretty cool. And uh, yeah, I guess the title was inspired by the location and the spaghetti westerns and all that stuff. I don't think that we had mentioned it, or maybe I missed it, but I think it, him going to Rome, he did that travel there and back for five years. It's crazy. Wow. Like that's, that's how long. Because again, if he started in like the two thousand five, two thousand six era, and right. it came out in eleven, he spent right. he spent five years going to Rome and back. <laughs> it's- crazy i mean if you're whatever it's a rock star move right, yeah, right? <laughs> sounds pretty good do we know who did the album artwork yeah jacob escobedo did he do the Norris barkley artwork as well because it has very similar vibes you're right actually you know i i, I when i was listening f- for the research on this i actually had my record out because i have rome on vinyl and I was literally mm-hmm. just taking all the notes off there of all the musicians, the players, and any info I could get off that. That name did look familiar, but I couldn't actually pinpoint it. I remember at one point, um, Danger, I was talking in an interview about the visual direction was by Chris Milk, and then the other person that did the artwork for like the, the bleeding black heart and everything. But you're mm-hmm. right, it has a little bit of that vibe where it's almost, I mean, this is you guys' realm more, it almost has like a round cartooniness to it yeah like it's very soft but it's very like it's a great logo because it works on a lot of scales a lot of um you know sizes yeah it looks like this guy does a lot of work with danger mouse like i'm seeing a lot of broken bells here Mm -hmm. i'm seeing the shins i'm seeing a lot of familiar names to um to what he did with uh to, to danger mouse's discography the artwork is very white stripes as well because it's all white cream black and red right. on the inside everything is is done in that kind of uh, motif yes but strangely like it it doesn't feel stripesy in that the the outside cover doesn't have any red on it. i think it's just black and white am i right about- the names yeah. for starring and who the the okay. guys are um is red but it's essentially cream and black yeah um, but you're right. Yeah, the color scheme is is there too. Uh, it it's odd for a film soundtrack styled, or I guess a spaghetti western film soundtrack to have that cover doesn't feel quite right. Right. But um, I guess I'm so used to seeing it that it that it works. Mm-hmm. But. Would it would it have read as pastiche or like a joke if they'd done a spaghetti western looking cover? No. I mean, I would have loved it, but yeah, probably would have been a little, a little on the nose, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I like the designy thing just because it's it's a little it's sort of classy in a way that I think is actually it, like lends itself to the spirit of the project a bit more. You know, it just feels way too contemporary for the subject matter that they're trying to evoke. Well, well yeah. they're they're also recording vintage equipment with an older style music, but they're doing it during contemporary times. Mm. You know, so and, and again maybe it's one the idea is like, hey, it is a spaghetti western, but the artwork ha- has its own merits. 
you know, maybe maybe that's the route yeah. they're going. I mean, either way, it's a very elegant artwork, and I, I love the art for it. Yes, I, I agree to that. It's just, um, to me, it, it, it always... I guess it, it evoked the right thing, because I was like, th- this looks like marketing for a movie that I am unaware of. Yeah, so yeah. Let's get into the track by track, shall we? Should Woo. we talk about track one here? Theme of Rome. is music by Danger Mouse and Daniel Lupi with percussion by JJ Munari and soprano vocals by Edda Del Orso. So yeah, so obviously this is uh, right out of the gate. The drums are the first thing heard and it gives the listener a sense of rawness and intimacy because the I've listened to it a lot of times and it's got a quietness until the guitar comes in, almost like drawing you in there, all the tom work going on. But again, very subtle, like traditional playing. The opening acoustic guitar always reminds me, I don't know if you guys got this, of Pink Floyd's Welcome to the Machine. Yeah. yeah. Do you, very floyd Right. That. It, it ju- it, that is a specific song. And again, I'm a huge fan of Wish You Were Here, and I always think of that like big, open, strummed chords right up at the nut with plenty of like space between them and a lot of breathing room, which I think Danger Mouse is really good at, and obviously Pink Floyd was very good at leaving space. I thought it was a great opener, very strong, and um, I always think of Welcome to the Machine. I had very a very similar reaction to that in the Pink Floyd realm. I, I instantly thought, like, this, this sounds very, very much like a Floyd song. I didn't pinpoint it like you did, but it, it did hit the, the same notes. As I will continue to say with every, like, interlude song, is that Ennio Morricone or Morricone, it gives those vibes pretty strongly the source work they're pulling the spaghetti western source material is is very prevalent in this because even without me knowing that that was the case i i had pulled that yeah it's very atmospheric and that's you know a lot of floyd stuff is atmospheric too but to, for to me the bass on this track was the star really a wonderful simplicity to it and you know, you get those sort of moaning voices in the organ and stuff as it comes in, but the bass really, like on a lot of Danger Mouse stuff, the bass is really the the floor of the thing and kind of holds everything together. And in fact, maybe the bass work, that sort of bouncy, vaguely McCartney-ish beat group bass work could potentially be at the heart of that Danger Mouse sound that I was trying to put my finger on earlier. But uh, But then, of course, you get that snare drum, 
and th- that is also a wonderful addition to the track and it keeps us in line while the vocals kind of bounce around and dance around those various little fills and things and uh, it's just a really gorgeous like scenic way to open the album and really does give you that movie soundtrack vibe right away you know you don't open on one with vocals really much yeah yeah you know when i was getting ready to do my notes for this because i've heard this record a lot it's been 10 years now i think when you guys had had jordan and i on i think i gave this as my second favorite jack white project album right which again another outlier and i was getting ready to go through my notes and i'd been doing my research and i was like man we're about to get into 15 tracks and Nine of them have no words on it, <laughs> you know. And but as I started typing, I'm like, man, I do have a lot I want to put on this. And I again, I had the vinyl with me, and I was just kind of breaking stuff down, you know. So yeah. kind of uh, elaborating on what's going on. And again, there's not you're not going to be like, I like this line that he says here. They're not going to have a lot of that on this record, right? Yeah. Well, that brings a, what a wonderful transition to track two here: the rose with a broken neck. The first of the Jack White contributions on the record. And this is lyrics by Jack with music by Danger Mouse and Daniel Lupi. is the first of the jack white contributions and jack told rolling stone in 2016 producer danger mouse and composer daniel lupe tapped him to write the lyrics to the rose with the broken neck along with two other songs for the 2011 album rome the project presented a new challenge for white who'd never previously written lyrics and vocals for another artist he said. So he took an unorthodox approach, driving around Nashville, listening to the instrumentals and singing into a handheld recorder, as we mentioned. So this is priming him for Hank Williams. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah. So White and his band then picked out a stripped down version of Rose with a Broken Neck, easily adapting the original into a haunting folk arrangement for that tour he went on the acoustic in Alaska tour, the acoustic... Was he elsewhere other than Alaska for that acoustic tour? Is that just Alaska? I swear all I can think about that tour is Alaska. No, he, he did... Uh, I, I think he did, like, Oklahoma and a couple Midwestern states yeah, as well. I think you're right. Um, but I love that. Uh, that tour... I love that. I wish he would actually do that again. <laughs> that sort of, like, stripped down, like, jug band kind of style thing. But yeah, James, as you mentioned, he did something similar, although it was reversed for yep. the um, You Know That I Know Hank Williams thing where there were lyrics but no music. And so it's kind of funny. They both happen around the same time-ish. So it's just f- funny that he found himself in two opposing positions <laughs> right around the same time. We also get our first Jack White solo reference to Crows on this song. Huh. It's a good tune. It's the first time I had ever heard it was uh, that live version from the... The Apple exclusive live album that uh, that they put out, I think it was iTunes exclusive. Um, that blunderbuss. He did the Rose with Broken Neck for that. 
I think so. Wild. I'm pretty sure. I have the one for dead weather that'll never leave my phone ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. That's Tim we've Co- gone over that that our yeah. our phones <laughs> refuse to give up uh, some of these. Tim Cook's like, I hope you like forever your queen or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> forever, forever my, my queen forever yeah my queen. as we had mentioned going back these were kind of songs that were two of the songs are out of jack's like normal register which yes. caused him to sing higher and sing lower as you mentioned on uh want and able the closing track right. whereas that one specifically panned so you can hear kind of almost two right. songs at once i remember reading that um jack submitted both takes and he was like hey use whichever one you like and they liked both of them and just kept both of them, you know? <laughs> and I think Jack had also said, like, that was new for me to finish singing it and just, like, I don't have to go mix or do anything. Just here <laughs> you go. Yeah. And it was kind of a cool thing of, like, hey, pick which one you like. You make the call. And then they're like, both, you know? And that's kind of a cool thing. A lot of times you plan for something like that or in the studio it just kind of comes out. But this one is like, hey, I got two versions. And then they... Surprise, we're using both. Him being treated like the talent as opposed to everything else he does where he is the hands-on driving force of the whole thing <laughs> at all times. Yeah, well, I, I think that kind of goes in tandem with at the bottom of the record, as uh, James was saying, like it's the only part that's in red is the names. It says at the bottom, starring Jack White and Nora right. Jones, right? So it's kind of like they're the leads in this play, if you will, and there's an orchestra behind them. Yeah, or or the the leads in the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're they're the leads in the telling the story with words, whereas the rest of it is with instruments. That's you know? really cool. I love thinking about those two as the two stars of this movie that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really kind of beautiful way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, uh, the the song by the way was two against one, not uh, Rose with the Broken Neck on the yeah. iTunes. Oh, I see. So. Yeah. Idiots. I'm sorry. I'm such an idiot. Um, so, so Paul, also to go off what you were saying, like the bass is what hit you on that opening track. So, yes, the bass, especially because it's upright bass and it's vintage, it sounds like vintage P bass on this. To me, yeah. in The Rose of the Broken Neck is the first time we hear the Celesta, which in my opinion is the sound of Rome. So I've got a little breakdown here for the, the listeners. The Celesta, uh, also called a bell piano, is a struck idiophone operated by a keyboard. The sound of the Celesta is similar to that of the glockenspiel, which is the smallest in the family of like the instruments you strike. So if you go glockenspiel, the next larger thing is, um, I believe, is vibraphone. Then it's um, marimba, 2005 era, the nurse. <laughs> And then right. it's xylophone. Xylophone's the largest. Colloquially confused with the little kid's toy you get at Toys R Us, yes. which is not right. a xylophone, because xylophone is wood. Something I was just playing the nurse on in my son's <laughs> nursery. There you go. So, yeah. Not- yeah, you know, that's funny. I always thought there was, like, handbells or some kind of weird handbell thing. But you're right. Yeah, no, it's definitely a... No, it's one of those types of things. Yeah, so so the, it's, um, it's similar to the glockenspiel, as I was mentioning, but has a softer more subtle timbre. This quality gives the instrument its name, Celesta, meaning heavenly in French. And in my opinion, is kind of the sound of the record because it's not its not mainstay instruments that we're used to here in America. You know, it's, it's kind of off the beaten path. We're used to hearing like Glock and we're hearing bells and stuff like you mentioned, but the Celesta, it's got, it's just, to me, it's the sound. 
the E Street Band never use one of these things? I feel like <laughs> they would be all over this, and I don't. They do love bell sounds, right? Or, like the the dinging, the dinging, the dinging. Realize, yeah, they love the dinging. They're dinging. Why don't they stop dinging? <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I, I it's my first note. I was like, suddenly we're in funk land with Jack White for some reason after that sort of. <laughs> pastoral opening now we're like it's sort of like swings hard but it it does feel like an act or something in a movie now that we're talking about it i'm sort of seeing these different tracks as different acts or a progression of a story that doesn't exist um and so i thinking of it in those terms is actually really nice and i could see why daniel lupe would have described jack's voice as abrasive here because despite his really pretty harmony the vocal does kind of slice through the track like a like a butter knife like it really does hammer you there and you're not going to miss that voice but in, in a nice way and now especially now that i'm thinking of it in terms of a character i mean it's kind of it's really a, a charming addition um to the record and and it's actually a really good vocal on jack's part you know he's all the songs he sings on this record are really strong vocals and maybe that's just because he was maybe like trying to live up to the idea that he was the hired talent <laughs> to do the thing you know so he had to do it well but uh but anyway that brings us to uh, track three here which is another interlude morning fog interlude and Daniel Lupi. Once Jack melts away from this thing, the bass kind of becomes the star again for me. And on this one, we get that really pretty arpeggiated piano. And I, I, I kept describing it in my notes as gorgeous because it really is just pretty, pretty music. And I'm happy that he didn't put he meaning um danger mouse didn't decide to put lyrics on every track mm -hmm. because in some cases these instrumentals really did need some space to breathe. Although there there is some kind of vocal on here, which I don't know who's actually singing. It's probably one of the the choir that we mentioned in the um, in the uh, artist rundown on the thing. But it's this is another pretty track. Yeah, the like I said, I was going through it with the vinyl in hand, and Celeste is the only instrument noted on this. So is it not even a vocal? No, I I think I should have had the vinyl with me here, but I'm pretty sure I wrote in my notes that it's the. It's so it's our first interlude featuring Celesta only, right? Um, and that that'll come back as a motif because the interludes actually accrue more members as it goes on, because there's three interludes. So this is the first one, which is only forty seconds, and I wrote down here that it nicely splits up the first two songs with our two lyrical stars. And each interlude features a motif from its full length counterpart that will be heard later in the album sequence. Uh, so obviously later in the record, we're going to get a song called Morning Fog without the brackets for interlude. And just to hammer in my Celesta love here, all three interludes feature that instrument, plus of the 15 tracks, it's featured on 10 of them. Wow. Again, <laughs> another reason. Obviously, bass is pretty much on everything, and like you're going to have guitar and stuff like that, but this instrument is on everything almost. I'm taking out my Hateful Eight soundtrack after this, and I guarantee you I'm going to find that thing all over that record. 
<laughs> I hope you do. Probably. I'm going Celesta hunting or whatever. Yeah, this sounds like a movie. This is great. <laughs> it's, it's pretty. It's it's very. It's also again being like o- the only like main thing on the song. It it keeps an intimacy there. Yeah. You know. It, my my favorite thing about these these tunes is that you can play out a movie in your head of what's going on. Like the knowing that there is no cinematography to go along with it, you can really kind of have fun imagining what scenes would be playing out during these and i think that's um that's to its benefit uh it has it adds an extra imagination component that that makes it feel a little more uh immersive yeah for sure well speaking of immersive Mm. we get immersed in some nora jones on this next track seasons trees an interesting thing jack wrote the lyrics to the songs that he sings on this record yep but danger mouse wrote these lyrics to the song that nora sings and i don't know if that's going to be true on the next one i suppose we'll find out it is yeah brian writes all the songs that uh, nora sings lyrically which is interesting that they they went that route and maybe it was just because like she was you know brought in as the counterpoint to Jack and you know Jack is I don't know I don't know why he actually it's a good question I don't know why he did and she didn't other other than mm. you know maybe it was just I don't know he it was, they were seems riffing. like he might be directing Nora's part a little more intensely because he's he's yeah. definitely chopping and screwing her voice a little more and kind of using Nora's vocals like you said to to do a particular job on the album and maybe that was just a part of it or either that or she just wasn't comfortable writing lyrics to music that wasn't her own or maybe it was a comfort level thing between her and danger mouse like jack and danger mouse were friends but like i think what we said earlier was that danger mouse just reached out to her cold and she's like sure and they didn't really know each other so maybe there was i don't know maybe there was some of that comfort zone thing or Jack could have just been crazy enough to say yes. <laughs> well, one of these days we're going to wrangle Mr. Burton and we're going to drag him on the show and we're going to ask him all these questions. But I just really love this track. I mean, it's really beautiful. We get that funk guitar and the introduction of Nora on the record. She just comes in like this beam of sunshine and again, that atmospheric, I think that'll be my word of the day with this record. It's just really, I get, I get the vibe, not just because of the title seasons trees, but it feels as though there is sunlight pouring into the record. And, uh, and she is, I think a protagonist in the record. I think Jack is maybe possibly the anti-hero character, mm-hmm. but I think Nora Jones is, is potentially the protagonist character in this movie that doesn't exist. But, um, there's an interesting quality to the lyric where it's sort of longing for change as if to say, Hey, can we have a do over almost? Uh, There's like, Mm. like everything. Why can't we be like everything in nature, which shifts all the time. It's sort of like almost reads lyrically like a plea 
you know, especially in today's day and age. But it, I, I got that vibe from it. It was more of like a um, a wanting. There was a yearning in the lyrical quality. Which is, again, a, another counterpoint to Jack's lyrics, which are all kind of, I mean, to steal your word again, antagonistic or uh, at the very least pained. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of pain and disruption in the lyrics that, that Jack writes. Yeah, he's almost... He's almost got that White Stripes character of his, the, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of the boy who's the imperfect boy who's yeah. got the rose with the broken neck, who kind of fights with himself in the mirror, you know, this sort of childlike. But he depicts, his, I think his White Stripes character was very like a, like a broke, not a broken child, but like a... Um, a broken boy odd, soldier? Or? A broken boy soldier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. But I see it's your favorite track on the record here, Alex. It is. This is def- it, you know, I've out of the gate ten years ago, even listened to it. I'd be like, man, I'm a huge Jack White fan. But I gotta say, I feel like the Nora Jones, the Nora songs are my favorites on this record. Yeah. Just in this one in particular, this is definitely gotta be my favorite Nora song. Um, my notes here were that um, Nora's vocals lend a subtle and smooth quality, and the word I like to use or the term is a sense of vulnerability. Oh yeah, with with her vocals, they're very soft, and like you said, like how Danger Mouse produced them, it's not obnoxious, but like they fit so well, and it's a great juxtaposition to Jack's voice. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, like he almost couldn't go any more strange than this almost gritty, showing his teeth type of character, and right. this innocent, vulnerable character. Yeah, it's very so- there's a softness to it. Mm-hmm. Really pretty track. Um, walked away from these repeat listens recently going up. I think this is going to make some appearances on some playlists because, <laughs> you know, I don't really pick up and pick up the, the non-Jack tracks on this record too often. And so I, it was actually really nice mm-hmm. revisiting those. But that brings us to a another interlude track, her Hollow Ways interlude. Danger Mouse and Danny Lupe again. Again, another pretty orchestral number. Kind of gives you the feeling it's being done on a keyboard, but done on a keyboard with soul. Uh, and I guess it wasn't. It was done with vintage equipment. But on a lot of Danger Mouse stuff, I do get a, a, a fabricated vibe to it. It seems a little electronic, to use your terminology from earlier. James chopped and screwed a little, like. Mm-hmm. He, like a filter. He, yeah, he does have that quality to it, like an Instagram filter or something. <laughs> but um, but it's it's pretty. It's really pretty. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised going off that, Paul. Like, again, he wrote the stuff here, right? And then he went over to Rome and they had it transposed and everything. So he yeah. could have easily wrote these melodies on, like, a keyboard and then brought it over to a traditionally trained Italian composer, which I believe Daniel Lupe was saying a lot of the musicians on this album were 70 and 80 plus years old on this record just they were traditionally trained italian composers so it's like you've got this guy coming over after doing the gray album and he's like hey right. i want to get these older <laughs> italian fellas <laughs> um and uh so quick notes for her holloway's interlude it's the second interlude clocking in at just under a minute again the time length goes 
as we get through the interludes. And for this one, again, the star is always the Celesta, but it's accompanied by the choir and the orchestra. So those are the ones by Alessandro. He kind of orchestrates everything. I think it's kind of like the orchestra is under his name type of thing. You know, I think it's kind of like a Hans Zimmer thing. Right, right, right. Where it's like everything's under his name, but it's accompanied with the choir. It's just another great, beautiful interlude. Yeah, which uh, brings us to the next track here, Roman Blue. Features harpsichord by Gilda Buta, and uh, again, music by Danger Mouse and Daniel Lupe. Soprano vocals by Etta Del Orso. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of harpsichord on this bad boy here. And I guess, uh, I don't know, I'm not always into harpsichord on records. I think it, it works really well here. I think when done poorly, it can read a little like like 60s dated sound or something. But I think it works really, really well here, especially in the context of everything else that's going on. And again, just another fabulous orchestral piece. Really nice bass, really beautiful guitar and the cellos and violins and all that shit. Just a nice blend of hip hop and classical fare on this one for me. Yeah, I thought it worked really well, too. And I uh, I don't know. I thoroughly enjoyed it um, the couple times I, I listened to it, but... Uh, th- yeah, I really tend to gravitate more towards the Nora and the Jack stuff. The the vocal accompaniments Helps. definitely pull me in more, or at least give me more to say. Other than like, that's really nice. Maybe I have to maybe I have to sit down with with this album a little a little more intently and and kind of really parse through what I'm listening to and and the emotions it's bringing me. But yeah, it's yeah. it's good. I thoroughly enjoy it and i hate the fact that that's most of what i'm saying about these songs it's good pretty good yeah give it a listen a certain thumbs point. up a certain point you know that's what it is and i think i had an advantage to having the record in front of me so i can kind of immerse myself in the players and what's on there too mm-hmm. you know and again but i mean if at the end of the day you're like you know what i dig the tunes yeah <laughs> that's right this is a this is a i mean i don't know Actually, you know what I want to ask you guys a question? Have you ever done an album review and had a guest on it? No. First time. Hmm. I am really cramping your style. <laughs> <laughs> no, if anything, you're giving us more. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. You're classing up the joint. Uh, that brings us to the next track here. The highlight for me on the album, the I think the only single released from the record, Two Against One. I don't do anything for free I keep my enemies closer than my mirror ever gets to me And if you think that there is shelter in this attitude Where do you feel the warmth of my gratitude? I get the feeling that it's two against one Already fighting me, so what's another one? This is the 
second of the Jack White songs, which is uh, lyrics by Jack, but music by Danger Mouse and Daniel Lupi, with harpsichord by Antonello Vanucci. And there is an awesome animated music video for this Mm -hmm. one, which is really, really cool. This is via Promo News. The animated video for the Jack White vocaled Two Against One by Milk and animator Anthony Shepard. It's an increasingly multifaceted project for the album inspired by classical Italian film music. Chris Milk, Danger Mouse, and producers Anthony Bergman of Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind and Megan Ellison from True Grit are developing Rome into a feature? Really? Boy, I'm like I'm like reading this and going, is that real? <laughs> I guess that never happened, did it? They oh. may have read into it wrong, possibly, or like I don't know. I don't uh, know how you would turn this into a feature. But anyway, uh, Jack has been playing this one live since the the Blunderbuss tour, as we mentioned, and it's seen in that Amex stock. And yeah, it's a great track. It's about it's a it's a quintessential very white stripesy jack white introspection song where he's fighting with himself in the mirror i think this one easily slots into an album like white blood cells or distill or something where you know you get a track like uh, boy's best friend or something like that i mean it's all sort of in the same thing this sort of self-loathing jack track that is very very a hallmark of those early white stripes years it's filled with a lot of tension, uh, which I like a lot. It's it, it's got a a tension that doesn't feel like it's ever released. Like you're constantly waiting for for the needle to drop, and it kind of feels like he's tiptoeing through the song. You know, it's he's yeah. going from one note to the other, and he's tiptoeing and creeping, and he's kind of, you know, singing in a in a softer voice, like he's whispering in a way. Um, right. The music video is beautiful for this. Uh, Anthony Francisco Shepard does an amazing job. I tried looking up his credits to see what else, like he's had to have done a lot of things, but like he hasn't done too much. However, um, Heart Like a Rabbit, which is a beautiful psychedelic nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He animated that and it is, it is really good. So I I recommend that. He also animated a music video for The Cure and for The Offspring too, apparently. Wow. Um, But yeah, Heart Like a Rabbit is, is, it's got the same kind of vibe to it. Um, Very, the whole thing has this uh, hunter kind of aspect going on through it. And uh, it's really uh, a beautiful music video and a really tensely powerful uh, song. So I, yeah. I dig this one. Yeah. You know, going off that, I think back to the record and I was probably thinking about it at the time, like this record for how long it took the musicianship on it, the whole background story, the amount that they put into it, it doesn't have a lot of commercial appeal <laughs> like mm-hmm. like this record. And it, it really makes sense. One of the notes I had, Danger Mouse said that Two Against One feels like the most likely choice for this as a single, which I definitely agree on that one. Um, yeah. It's got the most like pop, like poppy appeal as in like, you know, the fact that there's lyrics on there, you know what I mean? It's got a star like Jack White and... Um, the song also peaked at number 20 in Billboard Alternative Songs, and it was included in the soundtrack for Two Guns, which I think that was Denzel, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, yes, is on my sure. answer to that without any... <laughs> um, 
Also uh, in 2015. Washington? Question mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in 2015, uh, the track was also used for an advertisement for long-running British soap opera Emmerdale to promote the show's big summer fate storyline. Ooh. Because <laughs> it's like, oh man, I, I love that Jack White song from that storyline from that show <laughs> in the British soap opera. It's like, yeah, it does feel like a song that's pulled out of a musical, though, or like e- either a musical adapted to TV or something. But it, you could see like a main character like singing it as he's moving along a screen and every now and then you know doing a fourth wall break or something it's got a very has a uh, you saying almost has like a sleuth vibe yeah he's he's very slinky in this song (laughs) totally yeah almost james bond scrolling across the screen then turning to you (laughs) yeah type (laughs) so i mean let's pause for a moment to think okay jack white is listening to this music imagine this song with no vocals on it He's driving around Nashville, and this is what pops into his head. Him getting into an argument with himself in the mirror and treating himself as an adversary. Very Jack. Uh, so, so his everyday? His everyday. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just so, I mean, it's, it's reflective of his headspace at that time. Literally. Well, yeah, but it's, <laughs> well done. <laughs> but it's, it, I don't know, it's just like. That's why I think it's giving me that White Stripes vibe, because it's so Jack. <laughs> like, it's exactly the kind of song you would think he would... It's like the, the view into his brain, because that's what it is. Like, he's just singing what comes popped into his I, head listening to this music. Also, just want to point out, it's got his favorite number in it, because it's two against one. Right. It's three. Right. He's... Yeah. It's oh, great. Oh, fighting me. So what's on all <laughs> One thing that stood out to me was the lyric where he essentially uses the word plan. So the line reads, plan to break into the middle of this little plan. Then there's, then there's your plan to hear me say that I won't play around the way. Anyway, I'll plan to plan around them. And <laughs> what I thought was... Really funny. I, I wrote... Uh, the way he takes a single word, in this case, the word being plan, and repeats it simultaneously surrounding it by other words along with almost staggering vocal pattern delivery instantly reminds me of You Don't Understand Me. Oh, when yeah. When Jack Ooh. sings the line, who is the fool, the fooled, or the fool that you are fooling? Right? Yeah, this, that makes sense. Now, this is kind of like, I don't actually know if there's an answer here. Or maybe you guys found one, but this is my speculation. So that line, the styling the whole almost character-esque, which he definitely does in uh, The Racks. Jack's yeah. vocals were recorded at Blackbird in Nashville, the same yeah. as Icky Thump and Consolers, 2007, 2008, which leads me to wonder if they were recorded around that same time frame. Oh, because it was a five-year period. That, yeah. So that's my, going back to Maybe. Sleuth, that's my detective, you know, on, on this record of like, mm. the way he's working that one line, the delivery, the character aspect, where he yeah. recorded it, when he, like, it just makes me wonder. And then the other note, uh, James, you touched on this. I feel like this one slipped under the radar when you guys were doing that whole dedicated to Jack's use of the number three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Am I correct yeah. on that? This got under the radar. We missed it. It's because he's using math. <laughs> and when you use math, 
Yeah. You, you really, you, it just bypasses me completely. So, <laughs> unless it's black math, in which case, I'm there. Hey. Uh, a friend of the show, uh, Luther Russell, was just recording at Blackbird Studios with one of the guys from Wilco, I think. Wow. Yeah. Um, and and so that was it's yeah that studio is awesome and obviously has a very storied history. Once one of these days when James and I get around to just leaving our wives and children behind and, and taking sentence. a week long <laughs> sojourn into Tennessee and just visiting all of these places and doing all the annoying shit that no one else would want to do. We put uh, the sabotage in sabbatical. Yeah. <laughs> we are going to go there and we are going to do exactly what we did with that Lazaretto place where we're just going to call <laughs> and ask and try and worm our way inside. <laughs> But uh, anyway, that brings us to the next track here, The Gambling Priest. Music. I'm the all of the music is by Danger Mouse and Danny Lupe, but this is via Pop Matters. The timeless quality is most apparent on the instrumental tracks. Take, for example, the Gambling Priest, which leaps off of a drum fill motif established in the theme of Rome and jumps into dissonant guitar plucks that sound like alien trumpets. Its chanting voice haunts the mental desert that your mind automatically begins conjuring. And yes, that, again, that's what we were talking about here, the atmosphere, it's all very, it's, it has that desert equality because we know that they're doing the spaghetti western type of thing and that obviously draws, you know, imagery of deserts, this and that, mountains, uh, Italian terrain. But yeah, I like this one. You know, I don't have much to say about the gambling priests. I just, you know, it's a nice, nice track. But, the title's evocative. It it definitely draws you in more along with the music. So reading the titles along with this has been helpful again in the, in the mind palace, if you will. Yeah. So making that story. Yeah, it's got it's got the the strangeness, unexpected turn of events of a, of a of a priest who's gambling, and it, I don't know. It makes me think of a Robert Rodriguez film or something. <laughs> yeah. Where you have um, Danny Trejo. Thank you. I could picture a Danny Trejo in this role. He makes a mean taco. Uh, <laughs> when I hear gambling in desert, I instantly go to, uh, what is it, Scorsese did Casino. Mm. I instantly yes. go to that movie. Cool track. Cool cool album. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> the guitar on this one, though. The guitar on this one rules. Yeah, it's really the only time you hear like a reverb amount that's reminiscent of surf rock. You know, yes. but it's not played in that surf rock, like, drippy, wet reverb. Like, it is that, but it's not in that stylistic manner. The electric guitar and the choir are essentially doing a blues-style call and response, which is really cool. And then the Celesta, uh, the Celesta tops it off at the end of the verse. So it's almost like an A-B, A-B rhyme pattern. And then yeah. the Celesta comes in for kind of like the resolve, which is really cool. Like, listening back to this again, it's like, 
some of these tracks, as we mentioned, are, are mostly instrumental. It's like, I almost felt like I, for some of them, I couldn't stop typing. And for others, I was like, man, I got to dig deeper, I guess, to find some words to talk about in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say the, the reverb, whereas most of the time reverb is used to, to fill space mm-hmm. um, or to like make things seem grander, uh, I think the reverb makes the scene seem fake scenes seem more empty because there's this space that's being given to all the instruments and to all of the music that's going and it's kind of got this slow plotting nature to most of the the tunes and the reverb kind of adds a, a little bit of physical space yeah, depth, if you will right. yeah, yeah so you could you could feel like everything's a little farther apart and um yeah the reverb's right. almost a know. character here but yeah the reverb yeah. is like the the canvas so next up here we get another interlude track which again continues that to say what you were saying earlier alex continues that almost surfy sort of sound uh the world interlude and the world as the main track which we'll get to at the end of the record is is a highlight for me and so this is just a nice little slice of that before we continue onward on our journey Yeah, it's the third and the final interlude. It's the longest, as I mentioned. They were kind of stacking up as we go through for the interludes. Um, yeah. It features the most instrumentation, too. It's also the only interlude that has a counterpart with a full song version. So Morning Fog and Her Hollow Ways mm-hmm. both have counterpoints that are instrumental. And this one actually yeah. is the closer, which has a full thing. Um, since the second interlude, bass has been added to the Celesta orchestra and choir so again they're doing this thing where they're adding courses almost they're adding layers they're adding yeah. time length so they're adding instrumentation they're adding length of time as well to it so it's kind of cool it's a little bit of a build-up if they're kind of in their own universe the inter- interludes that is yeah mm. you know? for sure so that brings us to the next track here black and this is the next nora jones selection on the record Touched the walls of a city streets and didn't explain. Sadly, showed us our ways. I've never asked him why. Cast down, it was heaven sent in to the church. No intent to repent on my knees. Just to cry. wrote the lyrics to this one this is via promo news quote they hadn't really performed live together and it took me a minute to figure out how to run two cameras simultaneously by myself we did black maybe nine times which is why nora faux collapses at the end of the take seasons trees was second and we had one we liked after maybe three takes so they're talking about the music video there for um for the song Black, which is great, actually, the hearing uh, Danger Mouse and Nora do those two 
uh, songs together. Again, I think they're just it's just the two of Was them. Was that the and black and white yeah. ones where they're like yes. like she's on the ground yeah. and there's they have a pianist there and Brian is handling all the acoustic work and she's kind of just there, right? Yeah. Exactly. And it's very yeah. intimate. Like it's almost like <laughs> an acoustic sessions version. Right. Uh there yeah, the it's exactly how Danger Mouse described it. There's an intimacy and life within the clips that is sometimes difficult to capture with a crew uh, and lip syncing and blah, 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 blah. So yeah, that's that was the, uh, the background there to that music video. But yeah, it's another strong track, you know. I think of the of the Nora tracks, Seasons Trees is hard to top for me. Mm-hmm. But um, but no, this one's another, another, you know, great tune. I don't have a lot to say about this one, actually. It's also featured in the final episode of the fourth season of breaking bad mm-hmm. <laughs> that show has a lot of good music on it <laughs> what a wild choice <laughs> is this... yeah. i don't know it's just that's strange to me yeah that's really cool i think it's in the scene where walter plants um a car bomb if you haven't seen it by now <laughs> i think Wal- i don't think we have to worry about yeah. breaking bad spoilers <laughs> i think it's, it's the scene where walter is it the I-1 scene where he's like talking about it? Or I, actually, I feel like it's the one where they're at the, um, a parking structure and he puts a car bomb under Gus Fring's car and then Gus doesn't fall for it. I can't I can't recall, but it is definitely in the finale. And I remember hearing be like, oh, shit. Black. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, that's wild. I love those oh, shit moments. Those, oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, it's the, it's the um, Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the television meme of going, <laughs> if you've never seen it's a very good meme oh anyway. it's very this has been james describes <laughs> memes i describe me a completely visual thing in an audio format anyway. <laughs> leonardo DiCaprio points at a tv that's the meme um <laughs> that brings us to the next track here the matador has fallen evocative as hell yes yeah and i think they're they're meant to do that you know i mean even though this isn't a jack track it does have some big ass jack energy on this one (laughs) no and maybe that's the matador thing too obviously yeah yeah i think so i mean that's most of what i have to say about it is like all i was thinking about was the conquest music video yes yeah uh, that was playing for this yeah that's actually that's a good point that you bring up, James. But yeah, I definitely agree with you guys. Like uh, again, with a uh, lyric list and vocal list, like music, other than like choir stuff, like sometimes the title does the heavy lifting to get you roughly in the ballpark of where they were thinking, and then you do the rest of the imagination. Right. You know, the the note I had here was that the title leads me to conclude a connection to the gambling priest mainly because of the poem The Priest and the Matador by Charles Bukowski, written in the early 60s, which leads me to wonder if there's a connection there because spaghetti Ah. westerns of the 60s. I would suspect you are probably right. That crowd seems like a crowd who would really love Bukowski. Yeah, they love a Bukowski (laughs) over there. Yeah. Uh, And by over there, I mean in this recording group because 
this is yeah that makes sense i i was instantly thrown i was like is it is it the spaghetti western thing of trying to place like mexican culture like because spaghetti westerns never quite get mexican culture quite right because it's that kind of fake take on on the west but i don't know it's um because and the matadors are are more specifically or more often than not a a spanish uh european spanish thing Mm -hmm. although i'm sure they exist in in mexico as well i don't know it's it definitely make puts a, a mental picture though in your head which i which I dig. It play, uh, no, I think you're right, James. It places it in Europe, basically. Like, I yeah. mean, they're really writing a love letter to this idea of Europe imitating America. So they're Americans imitating Europe, imitating America, which is kind of funny. Yeah. It, it could also, now that I'm thinking about it too, like with the titles, I instantly dropped that Bukowski reference and there are other songs that use those titles like The Priest and the Matador. And it makes me wonder if it's trying to lead like the listener, like going back to the gambling priest title, when you think gambling, oftentimes we think of this negative connotivity of like going back to casino, losing it all, gambling it or getting into this debt. And that's your fall. Whereas this is the matador definitely plays with fire as well. Right. So there's this uncertainty whether they're going to win or not. And with the priest, if he's gambling or she's gambling in this, that's the uncertainty of the, if they're going to win or not. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting uh, little cross connection. There. Well, it's like a minute long and has no words. So we got to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that brings us to another instrumental here. Morning Fog. This was one of the tracks that actually gave me big McCartney energy. Uh, it reminded me specifically of the track Crean Acror. is from McCartney 1 and it also has a little bit of um, loop first Indian on the moon vibes from Red Rose Speedway a little which uh, is to just sort of say there's like some drony sort of hummings happening there but regardless of the influence we do know that Danger Mouse is a, is a Beatle fan mm-hmm. the melody is really pretty and it's, a, and it's an inspired melody and again gives you that atmosphere Again, I mean, a title like Morning Fog is definitely going to give you atmosphere. I mean, it's primarily atmosphere. Just, but, just like uh, yeah. Season's Trees. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fog is literally yeah, atmosphere. It's literal atmosphere, yeah. <laughs> what do you think they're going for on this atmosphere? Um, density <laughs> <Yeah>. of moisture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> moisture density. 
Yeah. Uh, it's good. Jesus <laughs> is like, I like it. It's a I good like one. It. It's a good one. <laughs> they did it. They, boys, this is your 13th, 12th number one. <laughs> well, James, you're being a real problem queen here, which is hey. the next track. Um, we have uh, another Nora Jones. I think the last Nora Jones on the record. Pretty piano by Antonello Venucci, and some urgency on this track. We get uh, whether I think it's like sixteenths, sixteenth notes in there that are really just gyrating, and the, the vocal really sells that urgency in some really beautiful ways too. And it's it's just I've walked away from this song thinking, boy, Nora could sell anything. Like I was talking about Adele singing the phone book earlier. I think she's one of these people who could just kind of sing whatever and it's fine she in fact she pops up on sesame street she does a song on a sesame street anniversary episode and it really classes up the joint <laughs> did, let me tell you wasn't yeah. jack also didn't they do my doorbell on sesame street or on nickelodeon no i was in nickelodeon nickelodeon yeah, yeah they did yeah. my doorbell although jack does appear on sesame street uncredited as a puppet and he is not actually Jack White, but it's a man who is supposed to be Jack White. Uh, 100%. Yeah, there's, there's White Stripes Muppets in one and, episode, which I saw and freaked out about, and I think remains our most liked tweet. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange thing, because there's a, a candy-striped drum set, and this is, we're just talking about Sesame Street. <laughs> anyway, point. yeah. No. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, um, I agree, Paul. Nora's got a fun quality about her that... that uh, an Amy Winehousey kind of quality yes. about her, in that it's it it seems classic and and modern at the same time, which I think is the theme of this thing anyway. It's it it feels timeless. I think is the, the yeah. word I'm looking for. Yeah, to go off what you were saying too, Paul, where you were saying like, oh, I thought there was piano on this. This is the only track that features piano on this record. Yeah, which is weird. It feels like it's all over the thing, right? It, but it yeah. just that's the way it is. Uh, to and to piggyback again like the driving nature of it, the staccato organ, you know, yeah. and the driving of the bass and the pre-chorus, which is good contrast to uh, the arpeggios in the verse. Really well put together song. Very, uh, again, I think the Nora songs are my favorites on this record. They're beautiful. After yeah. that, we have Her Hollow Ways, the penultimate track. really really pretty harpsichord by gilda buta and yeah another instrumental another really pretty pretty tune that sets the table for the world which we're about to get to and a another uh, evocative title that that really seems more in line with a jack mindset of, mm. of yes her hollow ways it seems uh i don't know it seems like something he'd 
he'd write a song title he'd come up with. It seems but... like something you'd do, Jackie. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy. Anyway. Yeah, I don't. I don't have literally yep. anything to say about yep. this. I've, it's good. It's, <laughs> it's. We could just probably record James saying it's good and just uh, put that in there. Yeah, it's. I, I, I'm, in, I'm the opposite of the critic. Yeah, my own, my literal only note other than it, it's a good interlude is it's my favorite um, instrumental track on the album. Yeah, of the of the instrumentals, it's a really strong one. Brings us into the world, the big finale track on the record. And I'm happy that bells were actually on here because I thought I was going insane and that everything was Celesta. So I'm happy that there are some tubular bells. Yes. I didn't even need those bells to be tubular, but they are. And they're Much there. like the X-Files bells that we all learned the name of thanks to the, that album that was advertised to us. The Right. Pure Moods? Pure moods with tubular bells, and it's the X Files theme, and it's like that's what it's called. Anyway, tubular bells—they're on here too. <laughs> uh, by uh, and Daniel Lupi plays those tubular bells, and the Celesta is also on this track from Antonello Vanucci, featuring lyrics and vocals by Jack White. And I I love this song too. Of uh, all the Jack songs are strong. This is a nice three-track EP. If they were ever to boil it down and put something out or something. Well, I guess it was a little short for an EP, but I don't know. This, um, this feels like the fireworks at the end of the movie. This feels like there has been some sort of resolution. I think it's in the melody, which sounds kind of joyous and celebratory, but it seems as though some problem has been surmounted and they're all happy about it. It's the yub nub of the yeah. Album. It's a real yub nub situation, but Jack's vocals are also kind of optimistic, although sort of ominous still because Jack can't help himself but just never be that optimistic about stuff. But yeah, it's I, I I think of the tracks, it's his most optimistic. But yeah, I definitely get a big celebration. This is a fireworks. This is the resolution of the film. Yeah, I, I get, I get, yep. I get. Um, like you were mentioned, like almost a bloom in like optimism here. And I, I just think it's leading to this like tumultuous hole. That's just, again, like I think um, the word I was trying to use for it was it's come to a conclusion, you yes. know, in a yep. resolve, if you will, like yeah, here resolve. definitely feels mm-hmm. that way. It's the only song that features, as you mentioned, Daniel Lupe for the tubular bells. I know you're hoping for like a triangle or a square bell, <laughs> but, it, the, the, but you got two. Yeah, you got tubes. It's definitely a series of tubes. A series of tubes. <laughs> One full series of tubes. It's also uh, <laughs> instrumentally, it has the most musicianship on it too. So they definitely feels like they were like, "Hey, this last track has everything on it." You know, yeah. if, if they if they were yeah. going to share vocals too, Nora would be on this one. You know, mm-hmm. I'm surprised she's not. It's very bombastic in that kind of way. And in, in that, uh, you got you got every. 
You got everything, including the kitchen bells. I, I don't think Jack is could even sing this one anymore. I mean, I think this was a stretch for him at that time mm-hmm. with his voice, but... Well, it's got, it's got that double his, track thing, too, with the high and low that's octave. That's true. You know, so... That's true. I wonder if it was... It was probably written a similar time as Rose. It's really high up there for him, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it reminds me of those very early White Stripe songs that have that super high or, like, danger high voltage mm-hmm. where... He sounds almost uh, like a like a, a woman singing, and like I mean, not to be helped by the video, but his voice can be can really used to get super duper high. I don't think yep. it gets quite that high anymore. But on this one, it's like the world is and it's way up there. But it's it's good. I mean, he doesn't it doesn't sound like a stretch for him. I think just us knowing contextually what his voice tends to be capable of, I think we see it maybe as a stretch. Do you think it could have worked as a duet with Nora? That, I wonder why they didn't do that, actually. Yeah. Because that would make more sense for the movie thing. (laughs) Yeah. I just feel like it would have been an interesting confluence of events. Yeah. uh, It would seem... To have that... Yeah kind of happen and also it would be interesting to hear his voice set against hers because they are so different but maybe that's why they didn't do it it's because they might not work together i don't know could have been the could have been the time that they were recording it and again she did it in burbank he was in nashville when they and this goes back to my speculation and piggybacks on what you were saying paul about like the register jack was singing in and if he was recording at that like 2007 2008 time the register he sings in in the upper register reminds me of the title track broken boy soldier where he's up in that register and essentially he almost like can't do that live anymore right you know i I mean yeah not i promise alex we're not going to keep bringing this back to be almost (laughs) done but like it's like how lennon couldn't do come together anymore even a couple years after he sang it originally because it's basically like shouting it's like shout, singing, screaming, and it's so high for Lennon's voice that it was a great take, and they nailed it, but maybe not something you could get a bunch of repeat performances on. Maybe that's why he doesn't do it live. Mm. I mean, I'm not, he I'm struggles saying, with it, again, in that, again, we're keeping it in Beatle talk, I'm so sorry, but in the Get Back documentary, there's that whole scene where Lennon's trying to do the high notes, because Paul's like, why don't you do it in a high note? And Lennon's like... <laughs> Like this? Like, you want me to sing it like this? Because it's bad. And he ends up doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I don't mean to have this be like us criticizing Jack's voice. I, I really love his voice and none of this is a criticism on him. I'm just saying like, yeah, it seems a little high. Maybe that's why he doesn't do it live. Yeah. I, I mean, at the time, it seems like he pulled it off and it worked. The uh, The last note I have of this is the line, the world is a bull whose horns you cannot pull, I thought was really nice, and it ties into the oh. title of The Matador Has Fallen. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, That's true. A little, yeah. little call back there. I don't know if that was intentional. I, I wonder if Jack or Nora or anybody else had any privy to like the titles of songs, if it was like, hey, here's some titles of the album songs, if it inspires yeah. you. or It would have been great to like go back like to be a fly on the wall when they were doing this, or a fly in the fuselage for five years straight, flying back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, though, because if that's the case, like, did he receive a song called Two Against One and then 
proceed to I feel like that was him. spew that out. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it would be right. him. I mean, all signs point to it, it, it and, being... And I'm, I feel like I saw in an interview, too, that Danger Mouse mentioned Jack had that song, um, The Rose with the Broken Neck, liked the imagery of it, and they used that as the title. So, mm. so yeah, but I, again, I wonder if they were given, like, hey, Jack, there's a title called, like, The Gambling Priest. You're not singing on yeah, that yeah, one, yeah. but that's a title just to kind of, hey... Kind of like a director. Hey, here's the motivation, or here's what's going on. You know, right? So yeah. it makes me yeah. wonder. Either that, or it was retroactively called "The Matador Has Fallen" after this line. That that, that could be true too. That they took it as inspiration. Yeah, uh, that we'll leave that to the fans out there. I'd love to know if he ever actually did perform this live. Somebody write us in and tell us. I would really like to hear that. But that's the record. That's all 35 minutes of the. Rome project and we're gonna I, I love how we talked for like two hours about yeah. a 35 minute <laughs> well we're gonna get into we'll just touch on a little reception before we wrap up here but uh, yeah this uh, the chart positions it peaked at number 11 on the US Billboard Top 200 which is actually a pretty respectable showing for such a weird yep like <laughs> it's a weird hard, time in rock and roll though hard to define project yeah like yeah. I said it's not very quote commercial but it's very listenable sure sure. yeah yeah and it hit number uh 20 in the uk 15 in canada hit number five in the u.s alternative albums and rock charts respectively so it did pretty well it it had a good single pushing it it had danger mouse who was as hot as he could be at this point Mm -hmm. yes um true so i think a lot of that adds to the um kind of luster at the time yeah reviews were kind uh, at the time especially and uh, pitchfork offered an uncharacteristically kind uh seven out of ten for this one and uh pulled the quote white's natural eeriness and jones's diffident eroticism certainly fit a sound built around mystical melodrama and chilly euro heartbreak but their voices are such complementary opposites that they turn out to be what gives Rome much of its distinctiveness, keeping it from being just another record collector or film collector exercise in getting everything period perfect. And true to the album's slippery, not quite an album, not quite a score form, their contributions can either work as the big showcase moments for pop fans or just as part of the soundtrack-like flow. And whether or not the album succeeds for you as a score to your own invisible flick, inducing images of fog-swept villas and cigaretta-chomping villains in fedoras as the organs swell and the guitars pluck mournfully away, it's purely gorgeous. So that is Pitchfork, who doesn't like anything, uh, did, did like this. And then we also have here three and a half stars from Rolling Stone, we have a B minus from the AV Club. Homage is tricky business. Stick too close to the real thing and you risk not making an impression. Stray too far and you might as well not cite your sources. Burton and Lupi don't entirely lose their identities in the desert vistas of Rome. The record has all the crisp conciseness of a Danger Mouse production, but they might have created a better story than a record. Hmm. So B minus from the AV Club, and then pop, 
Pop Matters followed up on a 10-year retrospective of the initial release. At the risk of sounding pretentious, this is an album particularly suited for vinyl consumption, more so if you can get your hands on the all-instrumental LP. Did not realize that existed. Pretty cool. On Rome's highly ambitious side, since Danger Mouse and Daniel Lupi stick the landing, it's a magnificent and lush escape into another time and another place. Ten years ago, it would have been impossible to predict the global pandemic that has largely altered our daily lives. But today, the new normal makes Rome all the more essential. And that brings us to the end of our notes here. Guys, do you want to rate the record? James, just say I like it. Well, we are going to rate it, but we're going to rate it. And yes, I do like it. I just want to say it's good. Um, but uh, we're going to rate it based on uh, our patented system, the Cold Stone Creamery system. That's uh, out of three men. We got, uh, we like it, we love it, or we've got to have it. Paul, it's the Cold Stone Creamery system. I could explain why we do it that way, but who cares? <laughs> <laughs> now, right. If you don't know, you haven't been listening for all the years. Yeah. If you if you just sat through two hours of us talking about the Rome soundtrack, you be going. It's good. You've heard other episodes we've done. Let's just. It's safe to assume this was not the opener for somebody who was just starting. If it is show. welcome. Uh, Alex, you're the guest. Would you like to rate the album first out of three men? You can do halves and quarters if you like. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. So, as I had reiterated from our previous episodes, that of Jack's records, this is my number two favorite Jack project, Jack-esque project, if you will. And for that simple fact, the instrumentation, the fact that it's got a a score to something that doesn't exist, it's got Danger Mouse on it. Anything conceptual generally pulls at me in a good way. Um, the artwork, everything done with it, the story, the background. I think for this record, I'm going to go with a a 2.8 men. Wow. wow. It's up there for me, Very, gentlemen. Uh, yeah. Prestigious. Yeah. That's a high one. Yeah. That's a high it's a high one. It's 10 years, 10 years uh, later since I bought the first, like, I think I got it on CD first. It's been 10 years now, and wow. I still spin it like it's new, too. That's great. How, how, about, awesome. how about you guys? James? Uh, well, I will uh, say that it is often forgettable to me in that it is because I am listening usually more for lyrical content and not for, for instrumental content. I often kind of forget it exists in, in that way, although it was really pleasant to get to know it again. Uh, and to to listen to it with a closer ear, uh, the Nora Jones stuff is beautiful. The kind of imagery that it evokes is um, fantastic and uh, a really nice mental exercise. I think the Jack songs are solid, and it remains in the time in which the White Stripes, the Raconteurs, uh, and Jack White solo all kind of exist together in the same and the universe dead and the dead weather in the same universe and i i really appreciate that time frame in jack's life and there's a lot of creativity going on and i think his brain is firing on all cylinders so i think like he's really pumping out some of the best stuff he's ever written uh in that time the artwork's great the music's great uh that said it's good i'm gonna give it two men wow solid two down the middle down the middle. It's I, 
I considered giving it 1.5. I don't know if... You know what? I'm going 1.5. I'm <laughs> sorry. Because it, it, I'm basing it Whoa. now off of, like, my white stripes and my... Like, that doesn't mean we don't like mm-hmm. it. That just, like, I put a lot of Jack's other lyrical quality stuff ahead of it. Uh, I would much rather listen to probably White Stripes or, or Tours or Dead Weather, and I think I've given them, you know, twos, and I don't know if I'd put it on the same pantheon. I think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It, it's a but, much different outlier record, too. And there's right. only one of them. It might be different if we had Danger Mouse, Daniel Lupi's second record, like almost a collection of stuff, too, you know, because it's such an outlier. But would I put this on in my car to casually listen to or something? Probably not. I think it is more of an art project. So mm-hmm. I think I will I basing it off of off of my personal tastes, it's a one point five. Basing it off of its criteria that it sets forth to do itself, I guess it's a two. So I'll split it down the middle, one point seven five. I've changed my answer yet again. Wow. Wow. Coming in after the buzzer. We're um, at the beach because there's flip flops going on right now. <laughs> I think James and I are in a very similar position about this. I admire it. I love that there are weird curiosities like that out, like this out there. I I love the songs. I think I would put it on casually. In fact, I tried to, and then they sent me the wrong record. <laughs> Um, but uh but it has that i like having a soundtrack on sometimes just have nice sort of music in the background you don't have to think too much about and uh, and this gives me that and if i'm putting on the hateful eight soundtrack i'm definitely putting this on because i think it's you know it's really it's a tight more socially appropriate (laughs) more socially appropriate it's a tight it's a tight beautiful beautiful record but I think I'm right there with you James I think I'm coming in at 1.5 on this because because I wouldn't put it in the pantheon of other tracks and would I have preferred to hear Danger Mouse just produce a Jack record yeah 100% I would have rather heard that that would be cool Uh, that's not what this is this is a very different thing Um, but I love it everything about my attitude towards it is a three out of three men. Mm-hmm. But I think if I was, if I'm looking at this critically, I return to two against one. I like Rose with the broken neck, particularly how the band did it. The uh, acoustic band did it. I would have liked to have hear the, heard the world with that acoustic band. That could have been really nice here in Lily May's mandolin doing the, the world. Would have been really great, but um, but yeah, I don't know for those three tracks and the Nora stuff. I just I don't know if I'm going going any higher. I really like it though, you know. I really like it. That's what that's what one point five would be, right? On your scale, really like yeah, it. I really like it. I mean, yeah, I didn't explain the scale at all with <laughs> because we do. Jeez, Louise. Jeez. We don't dislike anything he's done. I, yeah. We're pretty, we're sick pretty of much fans. sick of fans. Yeah, yeah we can't be trusted. No. So don't take this for anything. Just don't take this. Alex Garaldi, we love talking to you. Thank you for coming up with this idea and for joining us on the show today. Is there anything you and the Imagineers at Copper Sound... It's trademarked. uh, You and the Miracle Workers at Copper Sound are got coming down the pike that you can tease anything you want to plug what's going on how is your thanksgiving got any fun christmas plans what's happening um not uh, well it's the end of the year so 
we're doing inventory, so that's not super exciting for anybody. But um, right now we're just continuing to roll on uh, that third man collab triple graph. I think we've got another 1,200 to make for them um, wow. from the first five POs, and uh, we're just rolling on that. I think we have a collection of between full-time and part-time people. We've got seven people in the shop. Wow. Which is, which is nice. Um, Growing. Yep. Making the thing, living the dream. Um, we've got a couple things in the works that will come out next year because Triple Graph has kept us, like, thankfully busy but also has hindered us making our own products. But for the, for yeah. the mm. ultimate good, I mean, we wouldn't trade doing a project with Jack for making our own little things, you know? Um, yeah. I bet she's used it all over that new record or those, those two new records. Uh, yeah. I don't remember if I mentioned to you, but when we were in Nashville, we got to film Jack in his office for a documentary. Yeah. So we're, we're working yeah. on a documentary that'll be out sometime between now and my death. And <laughs> it's just a long undertaking that Jordan and I are going to be doing. But when we were in Nashville, we filmed a documentary with Jack's parts and everything in his office. He had mentioned the new record has pretty much the triple graph on every track. Wow. Wow. That's Which awesome. Which is really cool. He's Look at what you guys have done. We, we made him. It's beautiful. We made him. Um, these actually haven't been circulated the internet yet, but we'll eventually put them out. We made him limited edition triple graphs, one in red one in blue and one in copper awesome nice. three projects and he says he's got the red his whole studio is red which is really cool at his house so he's got that one on his like recording board and then when he tours we actually what was it you guys see the videos from the london store opening yeah, so him yeah. and daru i think in dom right yeah. um he had the blue triple graph on his board Wow. And those 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 Reddit internet angels were zooming in. I'll tell you that they were <laughs> trying to see what that was. But uh, yeah, that's what's been going on in the CSP studio. Just end of the year stuff, holidays. We've got some new projects that we're squeezing in time, no matter what it takes to try to work on. We have the really like we actually got this burst of time between batches that we're like, let's go 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 with the new designs. We've been like sitting on for months and months so yeah it'll be fun to kind of do something other than triple as much as triple graph is like the thing that's really helped us out so that's uh that's what we'll be doing we'll be we'll be making more stuff with them and filming a documentary and hopefully that'll be out next year it'll be really cool to do fantastic awesome now you can't use imagineers for your for your workers but uh have you thought about thinkstronauts wow can you use thinkstronauts you can have that we can just have that you could just have that from from the man that brought you i like it (laughs) (laughs) comes the thinkstronauts the man who brought you the cold stone creamery system of rating system thinkstronauts jesus christ i'm sure it exists on the internet somewhere well done no we're all just copying God. So if I did say something, <laughs> let somebody else own. See, I had one of those moments the other day where I told my therapist that I hit rock middle, and I thought for sure that somebody had thought of that. And I Googled it. I couldn't find it anywhere. And I just had to find a space to use that somewhere. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, most people are either a rock top or a rock bottom. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I hit, I'm hit the rock middle there, baby. That's re- you know that when you said rock middle, that makes me think of Jordan. And I have a joke whenever we see like something that a person like like we don't really love it or whatever. We like to make the joke. Hmm, you're really shot for the middle on this one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, on that note, we have excelled and hit the top for this record and this album and this episode and this discussion. Thank you, Alex. We'll uh, look forward to having you on uh, again to talk about a curiosity that brings delight and joy. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure I'll think of something from colors to albums to anything <laughs> Jack related. Now, until next episode, I will be looking for a home in somebody's house who I've bartered with wine bottles to use their couch to sit on. Oh, and I will be looking for a Rome. Oh, James with another three-pointer. Fantastic. Alex, you have to beat that, though. Um... Until next time, I will be roaming around to find my seat to watch The Matador. There you go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't sell Paul, but you sold me. You really aim for the middle on I that hit, one. I hit rock middle on that one. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. The Third Man Podcast was created, edited, and produced by Paul and James Kaminsky. Our theme song, We're the Third Men, was recorded by the band Radkey, who can be found at radkey.net. To contact the show, visit thirdmenpodcast.com or email thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at the thirdmen underscore podcast on Instagram, at thirdmencast on Twitter, and search the Third Men on Facebook. Thanks to our Patreon patrons, to everyone who has rated, reviewed, and subscribed, and see you next time. Alex, are you Alex, are you Italian? My well, my um, yeah, I guess I'm obviously American, but um, sure. my, of, my, your heritage. my heritage would be Italian. Yeah, Garaldi. Son of a bitch. I'm sorry. I must have. I, did I wildly offend you earlier? I didn't mean to do that. I apologize. <laughs> no, I, 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 <laughs> I just got carried away. I got lost in character. No, I don't, I don't really get offended again. I'm American. <laughs> okay. Right. I was born here, but uh, yeah, my, my family ties are uh, uh, Garaldi, Salamone. Uh, so a lot of uh, Italian names. Yeah. But I apologize retroactively uh, for getting lost in the y- sauce. You were getting wicked uh, family guy towards the end. <laughs> 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 like boppity boopity stuff was about to go on. I, I think I think James and I were both like, he's spiraling. He's spiraling. He's spiraling. <laughs> Somebody get him out. It's, 20, it's 2021. We got to pull him back. Pull him back. Actually, it, well, it, it, it was he was it was uh, he was twirling. The pasta. That's what it was. Yeah, he was spiraling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll... it was a fusilli. Hey, everybody. Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, 
and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like, chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on. It can be as much or as little as you can swing, and all donations are greatly appreciated. The last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash, so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough. But if you would like to help us out, that would be amazing. All right, that's all from me. Remember, you can head to patreon.com slash thirdmenpodcast, and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already. All right, everybody, I'll see you on the show. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. You texted me. I think I was pooping at the time. And and I saw it and I went, that's a great idea. (laughs) Um... We we readily accept <laughs> we readily accept ideas, and um, we'll only actually follow through with them if Paul's pooping. It's sort of a great. Um, that's that's it's part of it. Yeah, it's it's sort of a, a groundhog situation where if Paul's pooping, it's six more weeks of nonsense bullshit that I come up with. <laughs> or if he's not, I guess I don't really know where I'm at with this fairy tale yeah, legend great, upgrading. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, what what are they fucking called? Man, uh Paul's tirade on early rap is now um he's now losing <laughs> I'll all his have the Brussels sprouts and they smell <laughs> kinda weird. Now I'll sample the potatoes and they also smell weird. <laughs> Alright, anyway, th- Sure. Uh, I'm going to take a break real quick. I forgot I have to take an antibiotic so that I don't die. So I'm going to go do that real quick. You know when you forget about the things so you don't die? <laughs> Piero There's a really funny moment in that new Get Back doc where uh, the Beatles are effing around in the studio and Glenn Johns goes over the loudspeaker and says, uh, boys, you realize this tape is costing you, you know, whatever, to, you know, 
20 pounds of foot or something and then George goes well we're EMI artists aren't we and I just thought that was really funny to me that he, was, that he too was being very stingy it's just these rock stars like t- taking little pleasures and overcoming small financial barriers easily surmountable small financial barriers can I can I just say quick quick aside also about that documentary that director really wants to get them to Libya and I don't <laughs> I don't quite understand why he wants to get them there so bad. <laughs> I'm sorry, Alex. We, we, we're not going to talk about Beatles. Uh, 